0: You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from technology advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. Revenue operations. It's a term that barely existed a few years ago. And today, if your role hasn't been recast as part of a revenue ops team, you probably know a fellow B2B marketer whose role has. So what is this world centered on revenue operations and revenue operators all about? I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. In this episode of B2B Nation, we're talking to Jason Reichel, CRO at Breadcrumbs, which helps businesses identify buying signals in their data. Jason is a big proponent of revenue ops. He's actually championed the concept for years. We're going to talk about lead scoring, capturing and understanding the right data from your marketing and sales efforts and what it looks like when your company is correctly using the revenue operations methodology. Have a listen. Jason Reichel, welcome to B2B Nation. You are the CRO at Breadcrumbs and a revenue ops evangelist. Beyond that, why don't you tell us who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. Uh, So my background is in product and consulting. Uh, And while I was working as VP of products in SaaS companies, I realized that the go-to-market teams were kind of, kind of, and I don't know if we can curse here, but kind of and I started uh, thinking about there must be a way to help businesses in the SaaS technology space really understand who their customers are, really sell to them personally, and really scale. Uh, and so that led me to create a company called Go Nimbly. Uh, Go Nimbly was the first revenue operations consultancy, and we worked. Uh, and I was the CEO of that company for five years, and we worked with companies like Zendesk and Twilio, and, and we're still working with those companies, PagerDuty, all of that. And during that time, my goal was to figure out what this new world of revenue operation looks like and what tools they need. I eventually figured that out and went to work with a company called Breadcrumbs, and that's where I'm at now as CRO. Um, and I'm bringing um, tools to market that help businesses. Silo and accelerate their revenue. Uh, and breadcrumbs has our first, our first major part of our product is around lead goal optimization or uh, you know, lead scoring as it's called. That's not really how we think about it. We think about it a little bit differently, which I know we can get into. Uh, but ultimately, uh, that's where I'm at now because I believe that done the research, I've managed billions of dollars of revenue for SaaS companies. And now it's time to put some of those learnings to work in software.
0: What's wrong with the way most companies are scoring their leads? And it it sounds like maybe we're going to start with the terminology there that scoring maybe isn't the way to talk about it.
1: I think that scoring is a fine thing. Most products score. I think most businesses, especially if you do high volume leads, if you're, uh, you know, a SaaS company with a freemium product, uh, or you know, you're you're doing some kind of trial pilot to paid. I think it makes a lot of sense that you're going to have a lot of leads. I think most organizations in that environment need to have a basic lead scoring model. And so, for those of us that you know, I think everyone listening to this hopefully knows what lead scoring is. But if you don't, it's the idea of demographic information, some kind of most of the time, just demographic information about someone and if they're qualified for your business. Ultimately, now people have added things like activities and other things into that mix to get more of a dynamic score around account or or business and person, which is a step in the right direction. But most lead scoring solutions that people implement into their businesses are a a static score that would score Jason Reichel today and leave Jason Reichel alone. Some very very high techy tools will might might put some things in, like over a period of time degrade Jason's score because he's no longer as interested in our product. But really, it's it's not enough. Uh, you know what businesses are really trying to accomplish with lead scoring is to find more wins within their existing data, right? And to prioritize who and where to spend their time. And when we really think about that as a business we have multiple revenue sources for a business. Um, And the three that come to mind right away is new acquisition, right? So that's the standard kind of lead scoring model that marketing usually handles. But you also have things like product-led growth. You also have things like churn mitigation. All of these things cost your business money and your customers, that one person, Jason Reichel has a propensity against all of those goals of in your, in your organization once he's a customer or even before he's a customer based on his signals that he's sending out. Um, and so I think it's really important for business to, to understand it's it's multifaceted and it's also against time. So Jason Reichel today is not Jason Reichel three weeks from now, a year from now, five years from now. Um, and so businesses really need to look at people in those ways in order to offer the right value at the right time.
0: I get that a lot of companies maybe don't understand the complexity of lead scoring the way you just laid it out, that it it tends to be static and it doesn't keep up with changes in the person or in the market. How many companies still have the problem of they're not scoring their leads at all? Are they doing very, very like surface level scoring?
1: I would say that, you know, just because my my vertical that I attend to services in the high-tech industry, I would say that by the time that an organization has raised you know, a Series A or around 2 to $3 million, most organizations have some kind of lead scoring put in place, which is good. The problem with that is it's usually very, very simple things like hand-raiser activities for those people that don't know that. It's like someone filling out a demo form. Of course, that's going to be a rocket to your sales team. But how do you actually segment everything out and think about where the person is in their buying journey? Uh, you know, me being a revos proponent and, and one of the people who created that term. For me, it's about providing a personalized journey for our customers the same way that B2C does, but in a B2B space, right? And so understanding these dynamics of a person are not just about generating new revenue. They will do that. They'll actually generate you more revenue because you'll know exactly what to, to point where. But it, it's also about delivering a, high, you know, a higher customer experience across the board and maximizing the LTV of each customer. right? People who don't have good lead scoring models, and I mean models with an S there, or and I'm using the term lead scoring again because we haven't really come up with a better term to describe that, they tend to get more out of each customer than those who just have a static lead scoring acquisition score. Um, and so, you know, this is something that I really believe that revenue operators need to, to hone in on. I'm very big proponent on the job of the revenue ex, uh, operators to accelerate revenue and to get the most out of each yes. It's not really about converting more uh, people into yeses. That's kind of the job of the sales team and the marketing team. And that's what they're actually always working on. The job of the revenue operator is to maximize that revenue by providing insights to the team, by making sure that that experience is customized to that buyer. Um, and so. I think these are really good indicators on what operational path to put a prospect or a customer or a churn risk down.
0: Something that we were talking about in a recent episode with Christian Hawkson was that marketers' reliance on data, we both agreed was a good thing, mm-hmm. but that maybe now there's too much data and oh, yeah. it makes it hard for them to see things clearly. So I saw on the breadcrumb site, this totally caught my eye, you say 95% of the data doesn't matter. So my question for you is, what's the 5% that does matter? Mm-hmm. And what do you, do you think that the quest for data has become a bit detrimental to marketers?
1: I think the quest for data has become a scapegoat for not understanding your customer, for not really having product market fit, for not really having good plays to, to sell to your, your customers. Because you can always say, well, if we just had this extra piece of data, or if we just knew this information... What I like to recommend to organizations, you know, you know if I'm talking to like a Y Combinator, uh, SaAS company or something, what do you start with all of this? I say you need to start tracking events on your website and in your product as soon as possible. Just start tracking them. Then go back and look at what the yeses did, and those are the signals that ultimately matter. You know, and if you use a tool like breadcrumb, you can feed that into, you know, our algorithm and we'll make suggestions against your, you know, your score, your optimized score, right? Or whatever you think it might be. We don't, we never change thinking something automatically. We're really against like machine learning and AI is great, but it, it never stays in time with your business. So you might decide, hey, we're going to a different market or we're trying to do something different and your AI, you know, your data doesn't support that. But if you're very early on, just analyze the signals that actually led to the yes because everything else is a fire hose, and you know, I talk about this a lot. There's the activity fire hose. I'm about to post about it on LinkedIn today, actually. There's the activity fire hose, and then there's actual signals to buy. And since we've all spent the last year basically sitting on our computers, uh, there is more, you know, there's more uh, signal, uh, you know, more noise than signals than ever before. I look at products all the time that I don't intend to buy. Why am I looking at them? Well, because I have more time, and because I'm here, right? Uh, And I think that's only going. That's already started to happen before COVID, but it's definitely much more now. You know, it it is the the entire internet now is this place not where people just go for you know research, but also to kill time or to look stuff up that they're just kind of interested in. And so those are not all signals anymore. You know, people used to say, you know, when the digital revolution first happened, oh, you know, they go to your website and they study you. So if they're on their your website and they're reading your blog, now people read blogs of corporate websites to learn tips and tricks and never intend to buy anything, right? So like, you know, that's the world that we actually live in today. It's very similar, you know, to some of my marketing friends that I was talking to, you know, five or six years ago that was like, yeah, we go do this trade show, a lot of people are just coming by for free swag. It's really hard to tell which people actually are buyers in this space. And actually we can find out that the people that show up to the 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 conversation that the CEO gives are a better indicator of the people that are likely to buy versus the people that stop by the booth. And now it just becomes brand awareness. Right. And so Ultimately, I think that's kind of where we are. The 5% is what matters to your winning, you know, your 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 closed one opportunities. And you should analyze that. The only way you can analyze that successfully is by from very early having the events on your website tracked and as early as possible, having your product interactions tracked. Those are the two key drivers for true signals, in my opinion. Everything else... You're lucky if you'll be able to figure out and crack, you know, what's really going to drive business, you know, even things like co-marketing on other people's websites and things like that are are getting more and more difficult to understand. So I think clear CTAs to drive people to very specific actions are are, are something, something that B2B has been really bad at. You know, if you at follow Salesforce, you can look, read an email, click on something, end up in a well of a website, never really clear on what you're supposed to be doing. I would say that that wouldn't be a very good signal, right? So you need to have very clear signals planned out. I think it's at the point where revenue operations and marketing have to be surgical in their approach. And then also be aware that customers don't follow the journey that you always put out in front of them. And so that's why analyzing what they actually did is important. So I I always tell people we need to have a data hypothesis. We need to have a narrative that we think someone's going to do. And then we need to compare that narrative. And those are the true signals that will kind of raise up in our, our scoring algorithms that we use at Breadcrumbs and that we suggest our customers use as well.
0: There's so many opportunities for false signals. I think One of the things we've been talking about lately is You've got a lot of marketers who are just crazy about intent data right now everybody's talking about intent data yep and then at the same time they're like well we can get people to our webinar if we give away ipads and gift cards and it's like oh, do you mm-hmm. want signals of intent or do you want signals of giving stuff away so they could sell it on ebay like well <laughs> i mean
1: yeah yeah that's you, you just mentioned why revenue operations is so important revenue operations is so important because the north star should be revenue impact revenue increase In organizations that silo themselves, it will be MQLs, it will be SQLs, it will be opportunities created, it will be meetings booked. All those are not indicators of winning. Those are all just indicate, they only matter if it actually leads to new revenue, right? And so, you know, I can always tell an organization that is hyper-focused on KPIs usually is not seeing the revenue impact of an organization that is is really centered around one idea, which is we're going to grow revenue of this company. Uh, And what and the the teams being more solidified as one unit versus being separate in silos. You know, whenever I'm hearing that iPad trick that you just mentioned, it's like, well, that's because someone has an MQL target that they need to to supply, Um, you know, and that and then, you know, you go, well, how we need more MQLs and they go, well, we could just give more iPads. And, you know, that's not really a real strategy that's going to work. I think everyone knows that. Like, I think everyone knows that. I think everyone is uh, exhausted from a very hard year and a half, where you know, in in technology, net new sales dropped to twenty percent. I mean, I think that's why you hear so much, so many people talking about product led growth is because it's actually easier and been more effective for growing SaaS companies to find new upsells within their current customers than signing net new customers. So I think there's a lot of fatigue. I think we're gonna. I think suddenly we're gonna get back to this idea of all these growth hacking techniques that. Really only work for short periods. I think, you know, as an industry, we're going to go through a little bit of like uh, kicking, you know, dusting ourselves off and trying to get back to, you know, quote unquote business as usual. I hope we don't go back to business as usual. I hope we actually uh, treat people with a little more respect and not, you know, giving someone an iPad, it may be cool. Like the person might be like, cool, I got an iPad, but that's not really. That person wants to be spending their time on, and that's not really going to benefit their company or our company or whomever's company. And I, you know, I think that you can get that same experience, you can give the same experience of giving an iPad to someone by actually helping their business. Um, and so you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of value creation, um, not asset creation. Um, and so, you know, that, that's where I tend to spend all my time thinking about how can I actually help organizations become better and people become more successful. I think that if that's where you focus your time as a software company, how does my software make someone's career better? I think ultimately you win far longer and far more, uh, than if you go like, my job is to make sure that I get a meeting no matter what. I think that's a losing hypothesis.
0: I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice, and you're listening to B2B Nation with our guest, Jason Reichel. Just a reminder that DemandFest, our half-day virtual event for B2B marketers, is coming up on August 4th, 2021, and this time, it's in support of a good cause. Learn from your peers and support one of our favorite charities, Youth Villages, in the process. Learn more at demandfest.tech. Now back to our conversation with Jason. The idea that existing costs it's cheaper to sell to existing customers than to acquire new customers predates the internet predates SaaS. i mean that is a like a basics of business Uh how do we get away from that like what
1: i mean not i don't want to i live in silicon valley so i don't want to get my head chopped up but vcs (laughs) caring about growth over all else um and not caring about revenue and a lot of businesses going, oh, when I ran out of money during COVID, uh, VCs weren't willing to give me any more because I had didn't have numbers that supported it. So the narratives have started to change, you know, and everything like in Silicon Valley that we do is we basically gave upsell, cross-sell to existing customer base, this new term product-led growth. Um, and I'm glad because I think those are the people who sales reps, marketers they can add the most value to the customers who are using the product that that is the best signal data that we have as an organization is people already using the product right um it's the clearest of what they're doing what they're not doing how we can help them how we can add value to their lives you know there's also a lot of organizations that are going to use this for you know hiding their cancellation page you know things like that which is which is terrible you know i think in in every kind of new idea or catch on idea or, or wherever we're at with this kind of product, product like growth conversation. There's going to be good actors and bad actors and there's going to be people that exploit it and there are people that are doing it for the right reasons. You know, and I always urge all CEOs that I work with is like, you can win, you can build that unicorn, you know, billion dollar company off value much faster than you can off hacks. And, you know, I've worked with enough good organizations to tell you that's true. You know, for every one story you hear about someone doing something sneaky and making, you know, s- growing their user base or, or doing something like that, there's 10 stories of people adding value uh, to their customers and, and seeing growth, you know? And so I would say just focus on that as an organization and you, you can't, kind of can't go wrong.
0: But it means you have to keep investing in the product and new features and R&D and, integrations and all this other stuff because as your customers grow you want them to be able to grow with the product and to reduce reduce churn right the new people who come in uh maybe the original product set was fine yeah the feature set was fine right
1: yeah 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 yeah. that that's true you know you know, talking about product like growth being kind of a, a buzzy word that's happening. I don't really think of revenue operations as a buzzword because it's, to me, it's a methodology. But when you think about product like growth and where that's going to end up, then you also go to, you know, organizations that are looking at, like, everyone's a platform. Everything's a platform. Everything's, you know, these kind of concepts, which is telling your user base, we're going to continue to grow and what you're buying today may not be what we sell tomorrow or whatever the case might be. I think that's good. You know, I, I, I think that is a healthier way of adding value to customers than maybe some other organizations in the past which was as the pro- the product gets more popular or, or they're negotiating enterprise deals with no set price structure and you know one company is paying ten thousand dollars a year and another company who didn't argue is paying thirty five thousand dollars a year i'm not a really big fan i'm not i'm not a really big fan of f- about that i've i've worked with another co- a, a number of companies the reason i'm against that kind of pricing strategy is because you know the best asset you have is your customers and when you get all those customers in a room one's going to find out that they're paying $300 a seat for, you know, the, the product and another one's going to find out they're paying $30 a seat for a product and then you've just blown, you know, the trust that you have as an organization with those people because you know utilizing those, you know, product like growth is the first clear signal. The second clear signal is customers selling on your behalf. You know, and and scoring the likelihood that a customer is going to give you a referral that you're that they're they're using the parts of the product, you know, that are what you want your brand out there to be known for and understanding those people. So we do all of that with our own tool, Breadcrumbs, which is basically just for, you know, three marketers, three ex-marketers who started a company uh, on our end on Breadcrumbs and me, who's a revenue operations person coming in and saying like, we need to build tool sets that are about accelerating revenue, but also adding value, operationalizing the data we have because we have too much data. And so we need to start to operationalize that, you know? The first thing that most people get asked to when they come into a revenue operations world these days is like, oh, you need to connect all of our systems because we want one master database. And no one ever goes, well, why? Well, why do we want that? What's that <laughs> about? Uh, no, no one ever asks what we're going to do once we have this 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 thing, it's kind of like, you know, have you ever met someone who, uh, you know, they never watch the movies that they buy, but they just buy movies and they have this massive collection or they have a massive collection of books and you go, hey, how was this one? And they go, ah, I don't know. I've never read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's sitting on their shelf, right? The, the I think we're all for show. Yeah, we're all guilty of that to some degree, right? We all want to hoard. I remember when I was like a Luddite who didn't want to go to streaming because I have a bunch of records and things like that. And I did this whole thing. Where I digitized my entire library of music, it took me like three years to do. Six months later, it was all online, and you know, no one could really own it. You know, and I, and I think they were getting closer to the place where you can't own data; it's just going to be out there, and it's just going to be free flowing through the ether. And what you actually need to do is go, okay, what is what is the right data elements to tap into for our solution, for our for our journey, for our customers' journey, and then kind of let the rest of it go. You know, if anyone's ever hooked Salesforce up to all their 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 tools, you'll get duplicate activities out. You know, for days. That is adding a lot of noise. You know, we're 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 in the age of noise. I think, and I think that's going to keep us away from our customers. And anytime we're away from our customers, businesses don't grow like they should grow. Um, And so, you know, I'm hoping that we, I'm hoping people take seriously that like. You're going to have to adapt. Uh, it's it's time to adapt. Revenue operations is a method in order to adapt to this change. Things like lead scoring across multiple goals, so just scoring algorithms within your business is another way. And that's not the word algorithm scares some people like it's going to be complex. It's not complex. You know algorithms. You run your everything in our life runs on algorithms behind the scenes. You need systems that predict and help you assess situations people are leaving jobs like crazy now. I mean, I think there's something like 60% of people are, are churning over right now after COVID. Like you need systems in place because you can't rely that, you know, Joe, who knows everything about your customer experience is going to be there a year from now. And I think that's an exciting place to be, you know, like as much as I'm, I'm talking about and saying, like, I hope that we learn the right lessons here. I think the ones that do learn the right lessons and apply, you know, these methods will be successful. If I was a VC, I would be going, hey, what are your actual plans to acquire and grow customers? I think we're going to start to see that as a a new thing that VCs ask about when they're funding SaaS companies, which is something they used to not ask about. They would just be like, what's your cost of acquisition? And leave it at that.
0: Let's talk a little bit about revenue operations because it's come up a couple of times in the conversation so far. This is Clearly, it's an idea that's been catching on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some companies see it as a way to align all of the roles that, Great revenue, marketing, sales, the support roles. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that there's organizations that have slapped the revenue operations label on their org, but didn't change much of anything uh, because companies do that. So you mentioned that it's a methodology. So what does it mean when revenue operations is done well? What does that look like to you?
1: Right. So to me, there's the revenue team, which is a mixture of frontline actors. So you mentioned them, the sales, marketing, customer success. Those roles in themselves. So let's just focus on that. The, the you know the go to market roles, the people who touch customers. Those things are blending together more than ever. You know, who sits on your website and answers your drift conversations? It's usually an AE or or a SDR, right? That's is that marketing? <laughs> is that sales? You know, uh, the the customer success person who is who's finding those upsells opportunities. What's that? So I think the go to market teams are going to continue to merge into kind of one you might have a specialty, but you kind of have to be cross-functional in all three areas in order to, to grow a business successfully. So that's happening. And then on the other side, you have the operators. And I like to think of the operators as the directors, the boom mic holders, the you know, this sort of back-end thing. And their job is to scale scale what's working for the business, not really be worried about uh, you know the smallest deals that don't really fit into the ICP or the biggest deals um, that are kind of like you know you have your sales rep who's going you know you know Charlotte's going after this big customer who so way, way outside the thing and their job is to strengthen that core middle of the muscle that's what a revenue operator's job is to me and it's to be focused on the end customer so when people start talking about alignment I get a little itchy you know being one of the people who who invented this and brought it into organizations built revenue operations teams hired revenue operators converted people from sales ops people to revenue operators placed them in, you know big enterprise companies, built my own teams. Alignment is not the goal. Additional revenue is the goal, right? And by clearing that and saying, we work on behalf of the customer. This whole revenue engine works on behalf of the customer. And how we know we're adding value to the customer is the customer continues to give us their money and continues to find value in what we do. That to me is what the revenue team's function is. And they should be able to do that for any kind of product Think of that as kind of a standalone flywheel within a business, and it needs to be optimized and continuously made better. And even if you have a company who has a bad product, you can have a great revenue team. That doesn't mean that you will see the numbers that uh, that if you had a great product, right? That you could that you would see, but you can you can have a great revenue team. Um, And I see so many organizations, especially with this thing that you know is not as popular as it used to be. Everyone would talk about product led growth, like product led selling, mean that people get in, they do a freemium version of your product, they convert over. Then you have an enterprise rep reach out to them once they hit certain thresholds. And really, the product sells itself. I think that we've seen some fallacies with that model as well. right? So for me, revenue operations is all about aligning the business processes, uh, the strategy, the tools, the enablement of your reps and your marketing team, and the insights you drive towards the customer, towards being more customer-centric, towards finding the gaps in your processes. So uh, most organizations are not internally on the revenue side, data-driven at all. You know, um, one of the things that I teach people, revenue operators and coach them through is this method I created called 3VC. And 3VC is looking at your sales pipeline against volume, value, velocity, and conversion. And only caring about that and looking at a six-month trend and finding the gaps that that your customers are telling you by not moving past stage A to stage B and finding operational projects that solve those gaps. Because your customer, and this is true with all the customers Go Nimbly worked with, especially in SaaS, your customer shows up to buy Zendesk. They are probably going to buy Zendesk at this point, right? They know that Zendesk is the best quote unquote tool they use to at another company. What you're actually losing in the, the sales cycle these days is you're losing the amount of value they're willing to spend with you. Are they willing to take you across all of the departments? Are they, are they willing to sign a multi-year contract? You know, really, most people in B2B show up with some intent to buy if they're in a demo cycle with you and they're talking about buying from you. They're, they intend to buy, and there's probably a short list of one or two pieces of software, you know, and ultimately what they're looking for is who's going to give them the better experience, who's going to add the most value through that experience for them and make their job easier. And I always tell my teams when I'm managing them, our customers should have to use zero of their own political capital to get our product in place, right? I think too many B2B companies relied very heavily on, well, we'll rely on the relationship between sales rep A and this person over here. And we'll let person B within the company kind of take the hits for the product itself. And I tell people the way to make actual money is that let's lead, let's have the revenue team be super solid during that, that initial process. And then once we're in place and we're adding value, that person can use their political capital to help us grow. Um, because you know they didn't have to take the hits during the implementation cycle. They didn't have to take the hits during the confusing pricing conversation. They didn't have to take the hits in the negotiation where you know we didn't have. We, we went back and forth with um, you know red lines with their their legal team for you know three months, and now nobody wants to upsell or do anything because they're exhausted by that process. You know, and so those are the kind of things that I always look for, and I think that revenue operators are really valuable in if your revenue operator still reporting to your head of sales or your head of marketing, you're doing it wrong. Because they need to be a standalone agency within your within your org who's focused on improving the customer scalability, right? So that they have the autonomy, they usually should report to the CRO or the CEO, the same way the head of sales does, the same way the head of VP does of marketing or whatever you have. It really needs to be its own independent, but connected part of that revenue team. I also believe a lot, one thing I'll add that lots of people don't don't think about. I also think you should comp your revenue operations team based on growth. So I think that they should be focused on having some kind of number that they hit because what we found through our research when I was a CEO of GoNimbly is that the organizations that put revenue operations in place the way I recommended it will grow their revenue by twenty six percent. So that's basically getting twenty six percent more off each yes than you than not right. And so I could easily say, well, if our goal for this year is ten million dollars. Let's give a quota to the RevOps team of 20% so that they're working and finding solutions that don't require us to hire more people, don't require us to scale marketing or sales or do more paid advertising, but really is about us being operationally excellent and generating more revenue with the same you know, staff we have, with the same amount of spend we have, those kind of things.
0: There's been so much focus on customer experience over the past few years and something you said just kind of made me think about that because most people, when they're looking to buy software, they're looking for something that's going to make their lives easier, make their work easier. It's going to save time. It's going to streamline a process. If the start of the relationship is a million back and forths over the contract and the price negotiations and the service, you're off to a bad start.
1: (laughs) I think so. Uh, I I don't think good product saves you from that. Um. Yeah, I also think we're going to start to see less and less products that are about efficiency gains. I don't think that that really is that compelling. Uh, you know, the first products that were canceled were products that made people's lives easier during COVID, that things that were just nice to have that made things speed up. You know, when you don't have the volume, speed is not really that important. Um. And so I would say that what you really want to focus on, if I was starting a SaaS company today, which, you know, wink, wink, we just did, um, I'd be focused on, you know, what's actually going to increase revenue for a business. Uh, the fact that you can operationalize that, the fact that it does make people's lives uh, better, so to speak, is a secondary benefit, right? Um, I, I think that so many applications focus on administration, uh like if we save our user 10 minutes then they'll love us and i'm like that's not that's nice but that's not an aha moment you know when we when we implement breadcrumbs into an organization and we say look at all of these people who are doing these activities that you we've deemed during the model building as product product indicators that they're ready to move up in the plan and you have not talked to them in 6 months that's an aha moment that's an aha moment for the marketer. That's an aha moment for the salesperson. That's an aha moment for the, the revenue operations person. That's an aha moment for the CEO. You know, those are the kind of products that I think the people should be building at this point, point in time. Yeah. You know, Zoom has done a great job of giving the aha moment of connecting people and making people feel, you know, still connected in a very disconnected world at this point. I think everyone can experience that. It doesn't matter about your role or how much time you're trying to save. You know, those are the, the those are the kind of things I would tell people to look at.
0: Yeah, we, we, we've been hearing the term systems of insight a little bit more, which is less make their job easier and more make them look smart. Make mm-hmm. them be the person who can find that thing that, like you said, is going to grow revenue or lead to a new product or product line, bring in new customers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've never heard that term. I might steal it. It's, it's, it's nice. Uh, that, uh, that's cool. We just need, we need more words with the word insight and platform and all these kind of <laughs> kind of things. We need more of that. Let's create more.
0: Jason Reichel, CRO of breadcrumbs. Thanks for appearing on B2B nation.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks again to Jason Reichel CRO at breadcrumbs for joining us on B2B nation. If you found this episode insightful, share it with a friend or colleague and be sure to subscribe to B2B Nation on Apple, Google, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Thanks to the technology advice team, Amy Dunn, Sarah Wingate, and our podcast operator, Emily Whalen, And thanks to Mnemonics and the Guild, who put together this little ditty to see you out. We'll catch you next time on B2B Nation.